I'm going to ask you to take your Bible. We're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 this morning. Throughout our series on the ministry of the Holy Spirit, of course, we have used a definition that we've looked at over and over again. The Holy Spirit is the invisible presence of Jesus, fulfilling God's purpose of redemption in and through His people, the church. The Holy Spirit is the invisible presence of Jesus, fulfilling God's purpose of redemption in and through His people, the church. Of course, God's greatest purpose is salvation. And we talked about salvation in the Spirit a couple of weeks ago. And we follow that up with the idea that if indeed in salvation our hearts are filled with the Spirit of God, then we become the temples of God, according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And this morning, as I share with you this message, Temples of the Spirit, the theme is really catchy. I've, I've worked at this. Uh, it's actually two statements. In the Old Testament, God had a temple for His people. But in the New Testament, God has a people for His temple. Notice the first statement is past tense. In the Old Testament, God had a temple for His people. But the second statement is present tense. In the New Testament, for we live in the New Testament age or era. In the New Testament, God has a people for His temple. Now, before we get on the main road of our message this morning, let me go down one really important side road with regard to the meaning of the word temple in the book of 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, it says, Do you not know that y'all are the temple of God? And that the Spirit of God dwells in y'all. If anyone corrupts the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple y'all are. Now, those two verses have been, unfortunately for years, misinterpreted as suicide text. The idea is that since our bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit, anyone who destroys God's temple, him shall God destroy. Consequently, people have believed that folks who commit suicide have committed the unpardonable sin. But the good news is that that's a misinterpretation of those verses. You see, there are problems with interpreting 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 as a suicide text. First of all, the word you in the two verses we just read is not singular, but it's second person plural, which is why I interpreted that or translated that in southern uh, brogue as y'all. You all, second person, plural. Paul is not talking to an individual, he's talking to a group. What group? The group is the church at Corinth. The second problem with that suicide interpretation is that nowhere in the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 3 does Paul ever talk about the physical body of the believer. Now, now let me share with you a principle. The principle is this. More mistakes are made in interpretation of the Scriptures by ignoring context than anything else. More mistakes are made in interpreting the Scripture by ignoring context than any other reason for misinterpreting the Scriptures. And here the context, of course, uh, not talking in chapter 3 about the physical body of the believer, but about the spiritual body of Christ, the church. And the third problem with interpreting this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 as a suicide text is that you've taken a valid interpretation that we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and wrongly applied it back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Notice the words of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, part of our text for this morning. Do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit, 
who is in you, whom you've received from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought with a price, therefore honor God with your bodies. Notice in verse 19, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Here in chapter 6, Paul is condemning the Corinthian Christians for taking their physical bodies, the temples of the Holy Spirit, and participating in sexual immorality. But just because the word temple refers to the physical body in chapter 6 does not mean that it also refers to the body of the believer back in chapter 3. It does not. There, the word temple refers to the church. The real suicide text is not found in 1 Corinthians at all. It's found in Romans. Romans chapter 8, verses 37 through 39 says, What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword or even suicide? I added that. Or even suicide? No, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I would say that Paul pretty much covers the gamut there, don't you? Nothing, he says, can separate us from the love of God. Nothing at all. Now, with that said, let's move into our passage. We said that in the Old Testament, God had a temple for His people. I want to share with you a couple of concepts about that temple. First of all, in the Old Testament, the temple was God's dwelling place among His people. In the Old Testament, the temple was God's dwelling place among His people. Notice uh, what God instructed the Israelites to do while they were still in the wilderness. Exodus chapter 25 verse 8 says, Then have them make a sanctuary or a tabernacle for me, and I will dwell among them. That was the tabernacle or the tent of meeting that the Israelites, of course, made and then used to move from place to place as they traveled through the wilderness toward the promised land. Once they reached the promised land, they would go from a tent of meeting to a solid building, to a permanent building, if you will, to the temple that Solomon built. We read these words about the dedication of the temple in Second Chronicles chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. It says, The trumpeters and singers joined in union, union or unison as with one voice to give praise and thanks to the Lord. Accompanied by trumpets, cymbals, and other instruments, they raised their voices in praise to the Lord and sang, For He is good, His love endures forever. That sounds like a psalm to you. There's a good reason for that. It is a psalm. Then the temple of the Lord was filled with a cloud, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. Now, you might ask what cloud that was. The same cloud that was been following them for centuries, right? God led His people by a cloud to travel through the wilderness by day. And it's that same cloud of the presence of God. Back in 1989, things in Jerusalem were abuzz with talk of the rebuilding of the temple. As you probably know, the Muslim mosque called the Dome of the Rock today sits on the Temple Mount where Solomon's temple used to be. 29 years ago, Israel's Religious Affairs Ministry sponsored the first conference of temple research with a view to rebuilding the temple. And one of the most zealous groups was the Temple Institute, which had reconstructed 38 of the 103 ritual implements required for sacrifices. Their director, Zev Golan, said concerning the rebuilding of the temple these words, No one can say how. And no one wants to do it by force. But sooner or later, in a week or in a century, it will be done. In 1989, two Talmudic schools, the Talmud 
uh, are those first five books of Moses, what we call the law, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Two Talmudic schools near the Western Wailing Wall were teaching students details of conducting temple services and sacrifices. Now, that's bizarre. Going back to the sacrifices of the Old Testament, they were teaching students how to do that. Other scholars were researching genealogies to identify members of the priestly line. And they planned for a convention of priestly descendants back in 1990. One group of Jewish activists... Uh, The Temple Mount Faithful even dedicated a three-ton cornerstone one and a quarter miles from the temple site. Though we may identify and even sympathize with our Jewish people who gave us the Old Testament, we recognize that God no longer dwells in a physical or material temple among His people. Today, God dwells in the hearts of His people through His Spirit. And therefore, any temple is unnecessary. But in the Old Testament... The temple was God's dwelling place among His people. Notice also that in the Old Testament, nothing unclean was to enter the temple of God. Nothing unclean was to enter the temple of God. In Leviticus chapter 11, verse 45, God says, I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. Now, those words, I am holy, or those words, you be holy because I am holy, ring through, echo through the pages of both the Old and New Testaments. The root meaning of the Hebrew word holy is to be separate or to be different, to be set apart. It means that as God in His moral and spiritual perfection is different than we are, so we are to be morally and spiritually different from the world around us. And the holiness of God applied directly to the worship of Him in His temple. As a matter of fact, Leviticus chapters 12 through 15 speaks in great detail about the things that can make a person unclean and therefore keep him or her out of the outer sections of the temple of God. There was an outer section of the temple of God. And of course, there's an inner section to the temple of God. A section to which only the priest could go. It was the innermost section of the temple. That was called the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place. Exodus chapter 30, verse 10 says, Once a year, Aaron, who is the high priest, shall make atonement on the horns of the altar. This annual atonement must be made with the blood of the atoning sin offering for the generations to come. It is most holy to the Lord. The day of atonement is called in Hebrew Yom Kippur. And it was on that one day and only that one day that the high priest and only the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies. You've got a picture of that coming up would enter the Holy of Holies to the far left with the blood of a spotless lamb and sprinkle the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant and thereby make atonement or forgiveness for the people of Israel for that year. And the high priest had to be on his game that day. Tradition tells us that there were two things done to the high priest that aren't mentioned in Scripture. One of them was that they tied a rope around one of his legs. The other was that they tied jingling bells, this wasn't Christmas, but jingling bells to his waist. And the reason that they did that is if somehow the high priest had not atoned for his own sins, or if somehow he had ceremonially gone into the Holy of Holies, that holiest place on earth, and he had not been ceremonially correct with that, then he could be struck dead by the Shekinah glory of God. And nobody else could go into the Holy of Holies without dying. So what they did is they put the bells around his waist. And if the bells stopped jingling, guess what? We lost another one. (laughs) We lost another one. 
Pull him out. That's what they use the rope for. Pull him on out. And then they'd ask, who wants to be high priest now? And nobody raised their hand. It was a holy, holy thing. God took His holiness seriously. And of course, both the priest and the people of the Old Testament took holiness seriously as well. In the Old Testament, God had a temple for His people. But in the New Testament, God has a people for His temple. And I want you to see three things about God's being God's people, rather, being His temple. First of all, in the New Testament, God's people are the dwelling place of His Spirit. In the New Testament, God's people are the dwelling place of His Spirit. Jesus had told us that when He went away, He would be, we'd be receiving a comforter, an advocate, and an encourager. In John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17, Jesus said, And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. And the world cannot accept Him because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him, for He lives with you, and He will be in you. Remember the words of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19? Do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? See, in the, in the New Testament Greek, there are two different words for temple. One is the word hieron, and hieron just refers to the temple complex in general. Primarily, it normally refers to the outer portions of the temple complex. But there's another word for temple in the New Testament, and it's the word naos in Greek. And it always refers to the innermost portion of the temple, the inner sanctuary, or what we call the Holy of Holies. That's the place, of course, where only the high priest could go only one day of the year on the Day of Atonement. And the expression Holy of Holies is a Hebrew idiom used to express superlative. It is similar to the way that the book of Revelation describes our Lord Jesus Christ as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. By saying that, John, who's writing the book of Revelation, is saying he's the greatest King among all kings and the greatest Lord among all lords. So he's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And when used for the inner sanctuary of the temple, this word holy of holies, this idiom, refers to the naos as the most holy place on earth because God dwelt there among His people. In Greek, it is the hagios hagion. In Latin, the sanctum sanctorum. In English, you can hear the repetitiveness of it, even in different languages. In English, it's the holy of holies. What's most exciting about all of this is that Paul uses this very Greek word naos for the innermost, holiest portion of the temple as our bodies are the innermost portion of the temple for God. We are the place in which God's Spirit dwells. Our bodies are to be the holiest places on earth because the Spirit of God dwells in them. Let that sink in. And think about that the next time you are... About 9 o'clock at night, you start to think about what you might eat as a snack, and you're coming back from your third bowl of peach cobbler with vanilla ice cream. Think about that, okay? Your body is supposed to be the holiest place on all the earth. And secondly, in the New Testament, God bought or redeemed the temple of your body at the price of His only Son. In the New Testament, God bought or redeemed the temple of your body at the price of His only Son. You see, the river of redemption runs widely through both the old and New Testaments. You recall that when God delivered His people from Egyptian bondage, He told the Israelites to to take blood and to spread it over the casings of the front door of their homes and that the angel of death would pass over them. And thereby we get the feast of the Passover. The angel of death would pass over them 
And of course, the Egyptians were not so spared as they lost their firstborn males in all of their families, both man and animal. God made a way out of Egypt for His people. And so later, when the Israelites are in the wilderness, God gives His people a feast. He gives them a a way to remember, a, a celebration, if you will, that would memorialize forever their freedom from slavery as God's bringing them into the promised land. He gives them another way to remember what He's done for them in the Exodus. It was called the redemption of the firstborn. Unlike the pagans around them who sacrificed their children to their gods, Israel was to redeem their firstborn sons by sacrificing a spotless animal for them. And the blood of that animal became the redemption price. Now think about that. As Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, B through 20, You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. For us, the redemption price was the precious blood of Jesus Christ. A wealthy English family once invited friends to spend some time at their beautiful estate. The happy gathering was almost broken into tragedy when one of the young boys got into the swimming pool and began to drown. The gardener, uh, hearing the others screaming, plunged into the pool and rescued that helpless victim. That young boy was none other than Winston Churchill. His parents, deeply grateful to the gardener, asked what they could do to reward him. He hesitated, but finally said, I wish my son could go to college and become a doctor. And the Churchill family said, we'll pay for that. Years later, when Sir Winston Churchill was prime minister of Great Britain, he was stricken with pneumonia. Greatly concerned, the king summoned the best physician in the land to sit by the bedside of the ailing leader. That doctor was Sir Alexander Fleming, the developer of penicillin. He was also the son of that gardener who had saved Winston Churchill so many years ago from drowning. Later, Churchill would say, Rarely has one man owed his life twice to the same person. You know, what was very rare for Winston Churchill is common for us as Christians. We owe our lives to God twice. For both being our creator and giving us physical birth, and also for being our redeemer and giving us spiritual birth. And then lastly, in the New Testament, God's temple or your body is to be kept holy just as God is holy. God's temple is to be kept holy just as God is holy. In chapter 6, verses 12 through 18, Paul makes a number of arguments for the holiness of our bodies as the temple of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 13a, it says, All things are lawful for me, but not everything is beneficial. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power or mastered by anything. Food for the stomach, the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. Notice the quotation marks in those verses. Quotation marks are the editor's way of saying, these are the comments that the Corinthian church was writing to Paul. And the words that are not in quotation marks are the words that Paul was using to respond to those comments that the Corinthian church wrote to him. So they were saying, we can do anything we please, can't we? We're Christians, we're not under the law, we're under grace. We're free from the law, we're not legalists anymore. Paul was teaching those early churches that Christian liberty is what sets us free from the legalism of the Jewish religious system. Legalism is a negative approach to life that says that everything that is fun in life is either illegal, immoral, or fattening. Paul taught that in Christ... You've been freed from the legalism of the Old Testament. 
both its dietary and its ceremonial laws rather particularly. But the Corinthian Christians were taking that a lot further. They were saying that we are free from the moral laws of the Old Testament too. To them, having sex with a cult prostitute was no different from eating a bowl of beef stew. Obviously, they had gone too far in the opposite direction. They have moved from legalism right past liberty to license. And that's what we've done in our culture today. Look at it this way. Recently, I've been thinking a lot about where we are as a nation. And as we like to say, the mess we're in as a nation. Almost 250 years ago, the American colonists found themselves in an intolerable situation. Though they were citizens of Great Britain, they were taxed without representation and otherwise denied the rights of British citizens. They claimed to be living under tyranny. And they won their independence from England in the Revolutionary War so that they might experience liberty. But we are confused today as a nation. We believe that the opposite of tyranny is liberty. But it is not. The opposite of tyranny is not liberty. The opposite of tyranny is anarchy. I want you to listen closely to me. Anarchy means everybody does what they want to do. There's no law, there's no right, there's no wrong, there's no moral justification for anything. Anarchy says, as the comment in in this section just said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, anarchy says to us, of course, that I can do anything I want to do. Anything is lawful for me, everything is lawful for me. When everyone does as they please, then we have complete anarchy. You see, liberty is in the middle of the pendulum. And tyranny and anarchy are at the extremes on either side. And so in our nation, we rebelled against the legalism of earlier generations, believing that sexual license would bring us liberty. But it hasn't brought us liberty. Our sexual license has brought us only disease, broken families, and misery. Paul asked in verse 16, don't you know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. Paul is telling us that something mysterious and far deeper than physical union happens in the midst of sexual relationships. The quotation from Genesis chapter 2 verse 24, the two will become one flesh, is not only speaking of physical union, but also emotional, psychological, and even spiritual union. Notice the word unites in verse 16. The Greek word here means to adhere like glue and form a permanent union. One medical doctor in commenting on the sexual immorality so prevalent in our generation says that the bond that is formed by the male and female in sexual union is like adhesive tape. Now adhesive tape, listen to me, adhesive tape is not intended for multiple applications. Let that sink in. Adhesive tape is not intended for multiple applications. It makes its strongest bond the first time you use it. And every time after that that you try to use it, some piece of the tape becomes weaker and weaker until it finally won't stick to anything at all. And that's what's happening with sexual immorality in our land. The more sexual partners that people have, the less they're able to experience that mysterious bond that keeps two people together in love for a lifetime. And people are wondering why their marriage means nothing to them. It's because they've had so many sexual partners, they can't stick to anybody anymore.
All they had to do was look at the Scriptures. All they had to do was obey God. And they would find life at its best, but instead, they went their own way, they rebelled, and now they can't find life at all. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 says, Flee sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually has sinned against his own body. The Greek word is fugo there. Uh, fugeo, if you will. It's the Greek word from which we get the English word fugitive. It means be a fugitive from temptation. Run away from it. You know, there are some temptations that we can flee from. Other temptations we must fight. Temptations in our minds we cannot run away from, of course. Because if you run away from your mind, they'll put you in a rubber room. But we must fight those temptations. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. Sometimes we're to flee, sometimes we're to fight. Joseph is a great example and illustration of fleeing from temptation. When Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him, Joseph ran. And throughout the Scriptures, Joseph becomes that great biblical example of fleeing sexual temptation. Of course, sexual immorality is not the only sin that profanes the temple's of the believer's body. There are other sins that also harm the body. Drunkenness, for instance, will destroy the human body. You only have to take a walk down Skid Row in one of our great cities to see the effect and harm of drunkenness. Drug abuse can destroy the mind, twist the features, turn the individual into a twitching, nervous wreck. And of course, there's also the favorite sin of Baptist, gluttony, which can also destroy the body. Ultimately, what both Paul and I are making a plea for is for Christians to live up to our namesake, Jesus Christ. In John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. The one who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but in the light that gives life. We must live up to our namesake. We claim a Savior. And that Savior says, You therefore shall be holy, because I, your Savior, am holy. We must live up to our namesake, Jesus Christ. But before you can live up to Jesus, you've got to bow down to Jesus. Amen? Before you can live up to Him, you've got to bow down to Him. There's got to be a surrender of your heart and life to Him as Lord and Savior. If you opened your heart and surrendered your life to Him, it's the most important thing you could do today. If you've never done it, you have the opportunity right now. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for this time that You've given us today. We pray, Lord, that You would help us to love You more each and every day and that we would help us today to make the decisions that would please You. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.